0: Well, think of someone in your life right now who has wronged you, they've hurt you, they've offended you. In your mind, they deserve judgment, they deserve to be punished, they deserve justice. Or think of somebody in your life right now who's just weak, who's frail, who's demanding of your time and energy. They inconvenience you, They disrupt you. They interrupt you a lot. They bring suffering into your world and ask for you to help. And so consider this someone coming to you, sinful and weak and selfish and frail. How would you help them understand who God is? How would you help them know the God of Scripture? Which leads to even another question, that when you think of the God of the Bible, when you think of the God who created the world, when you think of the God of the Christian faith, who do you see? Who do you hear? What do you believe He is like? How would you describe Him? I think our answers to these questions shape every day of our lives. I think they shape the way we think. They shape the way we feel. They shape the way we live. They shape the way we relate to others. And right from early in the creation, after the creation of the world in Genesis 3, Satan is going to tempt Adam and Eve by questioning the very goodness of God, the very truthfulness of God's Word. That's what he's going to go after. And as we learned this past summer through the Exodus narrative, the people of Israel after God redeemed them from Egypt were constantly questioning the goodness of God, constantly questioning His care for them, His love for them. And that affected the way they lived. That led to there at the mountain when God was on the mountain and Moses there for weeks and weeks that they even questioned, does God care about us? Is he even here? Let's, let's make a, a calf of gold and give us gods that we can see. And then in Exodus 33, right after that awful event of the golden calf, Moses is going to go back up the mountain to meet with the Lord, to plead with him, Not to abandon his people, but to remain with them, to journey with them into the promised land. And the Lord is going to kindly hear that request and say, I will go with you. I will be with you. Which then prompts Moses to pray in chapter 33, verse 18, please show me your glory. It's one of the shortest, most awesome prayers in the whole Bible one of the shortest, most important prayers in the Bible, the prayer that we are to pray, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord replies, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, yes, I will show you my glory. I will show you my goodness. Though you cannot see my face right now, I will pass before you and announce my goodness in a name and in my name. And so you will behold my glory by hearing and by trusting in what I declare about myself, about my goodness. And then in chapter 34, in these two verses, the Lord's going to follow through on that promise. He's going to pass before Moses and proclaim, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So what I want to do this fall is spend four sermons unpacking those two verses. But the Lord is merciful and gracious, that's Sermon 1. The Lord is slow to anger, that's Sermon 2. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that'll be Sermon 3. And the Lord is just, that's Sermon 4. Meditations on the goodness of God, that's the theme of these sermons. And though the goodness of God can't be exhausted after just these four meditations, we, we can't understand the goodness of God without them. And we say meditations because it's not just going to be reserved for this time, but that we would go from this place and think deeply about who God is. Think deeply about what He has delivered to us in Jesus Christ. Because in seeing more of His glory, we change. By knowing Him more deeply, we change. By trusting Him more completely, by obeying Him more joyfully, by proclaiming Him more truthfully to one another, we grow up together. By proclaiming Him more faithfully to the surrounding world, through that means the Lord saves others. Because if there's anything worth knowing in this life, according to God, it's Him. Listen to Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I mean, think of a minute, how much time do we spend pursuing knowing God compared to riches, pursuing knowing God compared to exercise and physical might. Pursue knowing God over and against knowing anything else about anything else. What he's saying is there's going to be anything worth boasting in in this life. It is that you know Him and you understand Him. And we receive that from the Word of God. So we're going to look at three things to know and three things to do in response to what we know. And you'll see these, these points are going to be there in the service guide on the sermon notes page. But three things to know, three things to do. First, know this that the Lord God is merciful and gracious. This is who He is, that mercy, or it could be translated here compassion, is the withholding or withdrawing of judgment or affliction when the person who is in it can't get out. Often this is a judgment that is deserved. Sometimes it might be an affliction that is undeserved, but no matter what, mercy or compassion is the withdrawing or withholding of that affliction, of that judgment. Whereas grace is showing and giving favor that is not deserved. And so mercy rescues. Grace delivers life. Mercy relents from calamity. Grace lavishes comfort. Mercy removes wrath. Grace imparts forgiveness. Mercy bears away the penalty of unrighteousness. Grace imputes righteousness. So when the Lord says that he is merciful and gracious, he's revealing himself to be a God who rescues from wrath and lavishes forgiveness, rescues from judgment and pours out mercy and grace and help in a time of need. He loves to do it. He says it there in Jeremiah 9, he delights in this work. He delights to show off this work, and even the world that he's created, he's created to be a kind of workshop that now we enter into to see his workmanship, not just the creation of the physical world, but the recreation of his people. He delights to invite us in and to show off what he loves to do, which is show mercy and show grace. Ephesians chapter 1, we read it earlier during the pastoral prayer. Where he says in verse 4, he chose us, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, or better, the glory of his grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. What he's saying there is before the foundation of the world, this was God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, he wanted to create a world in which there would be people that he would redeem out of the sin of the world to show just how gracious he is. And so if you're here and you're in Christ, then you have received mercy and grace from the Lord. It's the only reason you're here, the only reason you're in Christ, the only reason you're forgiven. Is that God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world? That God the Father chose to apply the perfect work of His Son to you, to bear away your son, your sin by His Son's blood. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. You didn't. You don't pay it off, so you can't forfeit it. If anybody ever asks, okay, why are you a Christian? You can just say, because God is merciful and gracious. Why are you forgiven? Well, because God is forgiving. I think it can be really hard to believe this truth about God, to believe that this is the way He is, this is what He's like. I think all kinds of things get in the way. And there's five I want to mention now, five things that get in the way for actually believing this is who God is. One is just the belief that we understand God through the actions of other people, whether it's your father, your mother, other Christians, the church, whatever it may be, that there's even this idea that's suggested even among Christians today that our view of God is controlled by our earthly fathers and mothers, that if your earthly father is abusive or distant or judgmental or unreliable, then you will see God in those ways. If your earthly father is loving and present and patient and generous, then you will see God accordingly. So though people and parents and Christians and churches influence our view of God, to suggest that they determine or control our understanding of God is nothing less than idolatry. Listen to God in Isaiah 46, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. He says, show me anybody in all the world who's like me, to whom you can compare me, to whom you can look to and use as the model for what I am or what I'm like. So though people around us can help us and influence our view, they don't control it. They don't determine it. Others can represent God to us as we do even to our children, but we must never cast God in their image. He's infinitely better. But then secondly, daily circumstances. Maybe we're tempted to judge the mercifulness and graciousness of God through the pleasantness of our daily circumstances to where if we're healthy, if we're well-employed, if we've got money in the savings account, if we're treated well by other people then the Lord is good. But if you get sick, if loved ones die, if you lose a job, if you don't have money in the bank account, if relationships are hard, if circumstances are troubling, well, then the Lord must not be merciful or gracious, which, again, is closer to idolatry than biblical faith. But rather than lean upon his self-revelation, we're tempted to lean upon circumstances, which is deadly to our view of God, deadly. Because it's His mercy and grace that is proven in adversity, not discounted by it. It's His mercy and grace toward us that is most revealed through adversity, not most questioned through adversity. Or maybe we experience the mercy and grace of the Lord based on our spiritual performance. That's tempting. And if we do well morally, then God must be pleased with us. If we read the Bible enough, go to church enough, pray enough, then his mercy and grace is ours. But if we sin, if we fail, if we feel weak, then somehow we're tempted to project that disappointment, that disapproval onto God, as if that now controls how God sees us, how God treats us, which again is the very opposite of mercy and grace. His mercy and grace is lavished on the most undeserving, the most unable to pay it back, the most unable to achieve it or earn it. So the last thing God is going to deliver grace and mercy to you through is your spiritual performance or anybody else's. Or maybe it's emotions where we're tempted to view the Lord through our emotions that if we're discouraged and downcast, then the Lord must be aloof and uncaring. That if we're anxious, then he must be far away. If, if we just don't feel like he's merciful, then he's not merciful. If we just don't feel like he's gracious, then he must not be gracious. And we're meant to go to the Word of God and see that just the good news, the truth that our emotions do not determine in any way who God is or change who he is as if he's that small, That we can actually ruin his day. That we can actually act in a way that changes his character. When it's always been the other way around. We move, he doesn't. We change, he doesn't. Our love is fickle, his is steadfast. Our mercy is dependent, his is independent. Our grace has all kinds of conditions, which is why I didn't grace. His grace is unconditional. Then another tempting way to see God is through worldly opinions where the world believes that, okay, this God that you worship can't possibly be merciful and gracious because he hates sin. He hates things we love. You know, what if he says he hates abortion, he hates homosexuality, he hates selfishness, he hates lying, he hates slander, he hates oppression, he hates causing division. I think whatever that God is that hates sin, that actually calls sin, sin, that God can't be merciful and gracious. And so we'll just see who God is through the chatter of the world. And you know, we should never trust a world who doesn't know God with knowing God. We should never go to a world who has no clue who God is to find out who God is. Which is so often the very opposite of what the world thinks. In other words, we have to go straight to his word to hear it from his mouth, who he is and what he does. Don't presume to know who he is. Don't guess. He doesn't leave us to guess. Don't construct a picture of him from your circumstances, from how other people have treated you, from your emotions, from the various things the world is saying about him or even based on your own personal spiritual performance, go straight to Him. Watch Him. Listen to Him. See Him revealed through Scripture. And most importantly, study Jesus Christ, who is the full and final revelation of God on earth, which brings us to the second thing to know. Know that Jesus Christ delivers mercy and grace to you. Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That is, if you see me in action, you see the Father in action. If you hear me speaking, I'm speaking for the Father. Jesus is, Scripture says in Hebrews 1, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God the Son in the flesh. And so when God the Son took on human flesh and walked among us, the disciples saw the glory of God. And the essence of that glory, John is going to tell us, is grace. Listen to this in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John's saying we saw Jesus, we beheld his glory, and we received from his fullness, which was just infinite grace. Grace upon grace. And that those who were poor in spirit knew this about Christ. Those who were most needy and aware of their need were drawn to Jesus Christ. Those who longed for grace and mercy from God just adored him, delighted in him, wanted more. Lepers are going to come to him. The sexually immoral are going to seek him for grace. The blind are going to cry out to him, Matthew 20:30, Lord, have mercy on us. And he did. The friends of crippled men are going to dig through the roof of a house just to get their friend to him because they know whoever this is, he's a man of grace and mercy. And Jesus is not only going to heal him, he's going to forgive him. Parents of afflicted and dying children begged for his care. They knew this is the person you seek if you need mercy. This is the person you seek if you need grace the Holy Spirit just opened their eyes to see him for who he was. Even the children knew they could come and climb on him. I mean, you just, I love those passages where it talks about the children coming to him and being on him. And if you wonder what it looked like, it probably looked the way it would today if two and three-year-olds were climbing on somebody. They're grabbing his hair, they're pulling his beard, they're poking his eyes, they're spitting on him by and drooling on him. They're Their crackers are falling all over his robe. That's why the disciples are like grabbing the parents saying, get these kids out of here. To which Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Who says stuff like that? I mean, we live in a world that despises children that expends great energy making sure they're not conceived, and if conceived, that they don't come to birth, and if born, that they're put as far away as possible. What kind of God says, bring me more children? Thousands, thousands. What kind of God is going to live in heaven for eternity with millions of children who will always be to him children? They never grow up from his point of view. They're perfected. They're going to be mature and glorified, but always children. What kind of a God wants more children? Well, a merciful one, a gracious one. That when we see Jesus Christ through faith, we're to see abounding mercy and grace. We're to see this person who just invites children to come empty-handed and then invites us, even if you're a grown-up, to come to him as a child empty-handed. We're to hear from Him the invitation to salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were far away and hostile to God, he came for us. How much more now that you belong to him, will he be merciful to you? How much more now as his child will he be gracious to you? If when you hated him, he showed you mercy, how much more now that you love him? When you ran from him that he showed you grace, how much more now in his household will he show you grace? Because again, who goes to a marketplace to buy rotten fruit, no. let alone with your own blood? You know, who among us goes to the store to buy dead flowers, to buy a dead tree, and even to purchase it with your blood, let alone then to bring those dead things home and bring them to life? Well, Jesus does, because he's merciful. He's gracious. He delights in that work. God being rich in mercy caused you to be brought to life and forgiven through the blood of his son. And there's really nothing more you need in all the world than this. Nothing more you need. I mean, there's lots of stuff that are nice. It's nice to have health. It's nice to have relationships that go the way we want. But just in the worldview of Scripture, we just don't need it the way we need mercy and grace from God, which brings us to the third thing to know. You need His mercy and grace. We can even say it's the only thing you truly need. We don't need a healthy body. We don't necessarily need a better spouse, better children, better job, better parents, better retirement plan, better government. We're all going to suffer and die anyway, right? Right? What we need is mercy from God. What we need is grace from Jesus Christ. And I think we, don't, we often don't appreciate what a gift it is because we have wrongly identified what we actually need. Because first of all, you are weak. The Lord does not see us and relate to us as strong, self-sufficient creatures. Listen to this, Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that about you. Do you know that about you? Do you know that you are weak? Do you accept that? that you're not mighty, you're not great, you're not amazing, you're not strong. I mean, who in this room never sleeps, never eats, never gets sick, never uses the restroom, never gets sunburned, never gets dehydrated? Several weeks back, I was in the backyard and saw a number of these little flowers that looked really nice, and I picked one of them and decided to smell it and immediately started sneezing, and didn't stop sneezing for three days. And then I got a sinus infection. And then after a few days, I got a cold that I had for weeks. In other words, I was attacked and defeated by a flower. (laughs) I mean, think about that for a minute. A flower just took me out. That's how weak we are. It's even worse than that. Not only are we weak, we are sinful. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We worship falsely. We gossip. We slander. We lust. We resent. We covet. We fail to love God as we ought. We fail to love others as we ought. We don't trust Him as we should. We don't obey Him as we should. So Scripture even says that the Lord looks down from heaven to see if anyone apart from His grace really fears Him, really loves Him, really obeys Him. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says He finds no one, not one. Even yeah, earlier this week, I was late for a meeting and driving out on one of the interstates and was in the fast lane trying to go to get on time, and here's just this car cruising along, going the speed limit. And don't they, how selfish of them, right? And I just, I'm so angry, frustrated, start judging, look down, license plate, of course, Maryland, I mean, there it is. <laughs> just start, I mean, I'm just judging a whole state at this point. That's all it took just for all this sin to come out, selfishness to come out, to it's even worse than that. Not only are we weak and sinful, we're trapped. We can't climb our way out of our sinful condition. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. That's how much power we have to change. That apart from Christ we are Romans six twenty slaves of sin. We are, Ephesians 2.1, dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead slaves. That's the definition of being trapped, being incapable of improving our condition, of reconciling ourselves to God. It gets even worse than that, though. Not only are we weak and sinful and trapped, but we're doomed in it, apart from Christ. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. At the end of this life, according to 1 Peter 4, 5, we will stand before Him and give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, in the moment we all die, will stand before Him and He is ready to judge the living and the dead, but not by our standards, by the Father's perfect, holy standards, That we will all face the one that is so holy that all heaven and earth flee away from him. That his enemies on that day will cry out to the mountains, fall on us. Hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We're not just weak, not just sinful, not just trapped in that apart from Christ, but we're doomed in it that none of us can just make ourselves strong. None of us can just cleanse ourselves from our sin. None of us can climb out of that estate. None of us can show up on that day and have enough to offer God to be spared. So the conclusion we must come to is we need mercy and grace. It's the only, only hope. You need to see that your only hope is someone dying in your place. Someone bearing God's wrath away from you and for you. Someone who can actually give you righteousness, give you strength, give you freedom, give you justification before God, give you a a not guilty verdict, provide for you a way to be saved. And that's exactly what the gospel announces to us that the lord is merciful and gracious. the lord has provided a way of salvation through his son. the lord does offer you forgiveness of sins through him. and it's just not easy to see. in fact, we even sang about it in amazing grace this morning that it's it's grace that even shows us our need for grace. it's grace that taught your hearts to fear and grace your fears relieved. it takes mercy from the lord to help us realize that we need mercy. That's why Jesus is just running up against the Pharisees all the time because they just don't think they need mercy or grace. And not only do they feel self-justified, they're condemning everybody else. That's why Jesus has to say to them on multiple occasions, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You teachers of the law, you ones who know the Bible so well, go learn what it means that God desires mercy that God delights in grace. Because if you knew that, you would not have condemned the innocent. And if you knew that, you would come to me in an entirely different way. And we prefer to pay our own way. We prefer to earn good standing with the Lord. We like performing in front of God and others. We hate feeling weak. We hate knowing our sinfulness. We hate feeling trapped and desperate for God, but that really is the posture of the Christian, which brings us to the next point. Do receive His mercy and grace and abide in it. After seeing your need for His mercy and grace and see how it is offered to you through Jesus Christ, cry out for it. Receive his mercy and grace, which means trust in his work. Turn from your sin, your strength, your ability, your performance, and trust in what Christ has done for you. Relate to him as the Lord who is merciful and gracious. Believe that Jesus died in your place. Believe that he rose for your salvation. If you're here now just sitting under the wrath of God, alienated from God, doomed, then right now you can turn from your sin and look to Christ and be saved. I pray that for you. I pray the Spirit would even do that in you now. That He removes the judgment you deserve and gives you the life you don't deserve. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, meaning after all that's happened to these people who deserve judgment, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. He turns no one away who come in Christ. In other words, you don't need to clean up first. You just come. There are no bathtubs outside the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's not that here's His kingdom, there's a row of bathtubs, you the sinner show up, jump in one of the tubs and get to scrubbing. Because the stuff you're trying to clean off isn't something that just landed on you. It's something that oozes from the inside. It's something that oozes through your pores. So as soon as you scrubbed clean so you think, you jump out of the tub, walk up to the gate, look down and realize you're covered again. Why? Because it's oozing out of your pores. So, you got to go back, jump in the tub again, scrub, scrub, scrub. Okay, I think I did it. Get out, I smell good. Well, by the time you get there, you smell bad again. And you could spend your whole life doing that and make no progress. But praise God that the gospel says, Come and be clean. Don't be clean and then come. His blood cleanses, His blood redeems. It's Christ who brings you to the Father. And even now, as His redeemed children, if forgiven, we keep relating to Him through that same mercy and grace. Listen to Hebrews 4, chapter, or verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest, this is Jesus, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, not, it's not let us do all this stuff to impress God. It's just trust, believe, receive, hold fast by faith. If we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the invitation continually to you as his people. In your moments of sinfulness, cry out to him and receive mercy, receive grace that he delights in lavishing upon you. In other words, it does not honor him to act as if you want to pay it off. It doesn't honor him to try to perform for him so that he'll feel better about you. What honors him is that you take him at his word and you come to him in your time of need crying out for mercy and grace. That honors him. And so once in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you don't clean up before you get to enter into his presence. In other words, Even in the kingdom, there's not bathtubs like outside the throne room or something. Okay, I know I'm kind of in the kingdom, but I'm really not in the inner sanctuary place. So there's these other bathtubs we think are outside the throne room, and so we go there as Christians and we jump in the tub and we scrub again, scrub again, get out, go to the door, get ready to knock, look down, we're dirty again, jump back in the tub. That even as Christians, we could try to sanctify ourselves by the flesh, to make ourselves more lovable to God, by cleaning up. Again, he says, no, just approach the throne of grace with confidence. This is who he is. It's astounding to us, I know, to understand that we can open that throne room door, walk in, he looks up and he sees us and he smiles. Some of us have in the back of our minds that he kind of looks up and sees us and goes, oh, no, not John. All right, no, come on, come on in, John. Jesus died for you. Let's just... And we think he invites us in and goes, but you know what, not here. Maybe over there in the corner. Go sit over there. out of my periphery. We'll relate to God as if that's what he's like. Or is he inviting that open arms run straight to him, straight to his lap? You're his kid. He is so merciful, so gracious, that he knows every single sin you've ever thought, ever felt, ever done, and he still calls you, still draws you, still wants you near, still forgives you, still washes you, holds you, wants to be with you. He knows more about you than you know about you. He knows more about your sin than you know about your sin. And he sees it in all its ugly varieties more clearly than you see it. And still he says, come, come into my presence with thanksgiving. So if that blows your mind, then praise God, it's meant to. That's why we will worship this about Him for eternity, which brings us to the fifth point. Do worship Him for His mercy and grace. That is, be in awe of the Lord for who He is. Love Him for who He is. Worship Him for who He is. We read this this morning from Psalm 116. Verse 1 I love the Lord because he's heard my voice in my pleas for mercy. So his mercy should produce love for him, not guilt in front of him. Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me, and he felt the grave clawing at him, taking him down. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I call on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return on my soul to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. That's a great prayer every day, by the way. Return, O soul, to your rest, for your Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And so adore him because he's merciful. Love him because he's gracious. Don't sit around wondering whether or not you deserve it. You don't. That's the point. That should be a very quick answer to a very brief question. Do you deserve it? No. He gives himself as a gift. He saves you as a gift. We plead for mercy, he gives it. We cry out for deliverance, and he delivers. So even your salvation, as we already read from Ephesians 1, is meant to result in the praise of the glory of His grace. What is meant to stir in you is praise for God, worship of God. And that's when you know we're really grasping mercy and grace, is that our praise gets higher. Our worship of God gets more constant. Then finally, point six, do be merciful and gracious, that our awe of the mercy and grace of God should translate to a joy and delight in imitating His mercy and grace. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6, 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. In other words, we're to relate to one another not according to what our sins deserve, but according to what Christ has accomplished for them. We're not to relate to one another according to the justice that is due them, but according to what Christ had paid for on their behalf. In other words, we're to be always learning how to withhold judgment that's deserved. We're always to be learning how to show favor that is undeserved, to give grace as we've received grace, to be merciful as we've received mercy. Here, Consider Jonah. The prophet who the Lord sent to the Ninevites who did not want God's mercy and grace to go to his enemies. He knew the truth about the Lord and he hated it. The Ninevites heard the preaching of Jonah, Jonah, repented, and they were delivered from the wrath of God because of God's mercy and grace toward them. Listen to how Jonah responds. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was in yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, meaning to run away from your call. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew that about God and he didn't like it. He knew that about God firsthand because in the previous chapter, chapter 2, God's going to deliver him from death. God's going to hear his prayer and spare his life because of God's mercy and grace. And then he goes to Nineveh three days later and he forgets. And the Lord doesn't want us to be so forgetful. As recipients of mercy and grace, we're to show mercy and grace to others. We're especially to be drawn to the weak to help them in a time of need. We're to be especially drawn to those who might hurt us, sin against us, Because it's in that moment that you're actually best positioned to show what the grace of God is like. If you're only surrounding yourself with people who only treat you the way you want to be treated and never hurt you, then you're really not in a good position to show what God's grace is like. But it's when people sin against you, when they wrong you, when your spouse says the hurtful thing, when your kids disobey, when your parents hurt you, when your neighbors are unkind, when in your workplace you're reviled. It's actually in those moments that you're best positioned to be used by God to show what the gospel is actually about. So the last thing we want to do is never be in those situations. The last thing we want to do is just avoid it. And certainly we don't want to see sort of hurt and pain as the thing God's always trying to keep us from. but rather often the thing He puts us in to actually show the gospel in action, when we are forgiving by His grace, when we are merciful to others when we are gracious. So it means we need to learn to pray, Lord, make me merciful and gracious. Lord, in times when I'm mistreated, give me strength to be gracious. In times when I'm surrounded by those who are weak and inconvenient or pulling upon my time or my energy, Lord, give me the strength to show your mercy in their time of need. So again, think of that someone in your life right now who's wronged you. They hurt you. They offended you. In your mind, they deserve judgment. How might you show them mercy? What might the Lord have you do to convey to them His mercy? Think of someone in your life that's weak, that's frail, that's, again, demanding of your time and energy. And often so demanding that you don't have it in you, which is sometimes God's point, where you have to pray for it. God has to actually strengthen you to accomplish it. You don't have it in yourself to give it away. How might you show them grace to those who bring suffering into your life? Which is usually how it works, right? We don't actually go into it seeking the suffering. Jesus did. He entered the world to enter into the suffering, to be a sympathetic high priest. To come to the weak, into the needy, into the sinful, to impart mercy and grace from God, to suffer and die for it. And now he leaves us to fill up what's lacking in Christ's affliction so that through us he can show what his mercy and grace is really like. So know that the Lord is merciful and gracious. That's the first thing we have to know. Know that Jesus Christ delivers mercy and grace to you, know that you need it. You need that mercy and grace. Do receive that mercy and grace, whether here as a non-Christian, receive it, or as a follower of Jesus every day, keep receiving it, feeding on it. Do worship Him because of His mercy and grace. Praise the glory of His grace. And then ask Him to help you be merciful, to help you be gracious. For us to be a congregation, a church, who is defined by what defines God, who's defined by the very mercy and grace that he delights in, that that would be our delight, our love to the praise of the glory of his grace.